The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Gabriel Thompson. He is an independent investigative journalist. I have found his work to be compelling, compassionate, and critical for our times. He has written feature articles for The New York Times, Slate, The Nation, Mother Jones, Harper's, and more. His articles have mostly focused on labor, immigration, and other stories of injustice. Mr. Thompson's work has won several prizes, including the Studs Terkel Media Award and the Sydney Award for Socially Conscious Journalism. He is the author of five books, including the one we'll be talking about mostly today, which is an oral history collection of California farm workers called Chasing the Harvest. It was published in the spring of 2017 by Verso in conjunction with the nonprofit Voice of Witness. Welcome, Mr. Thompson. It's a pleasure to have you with me. Hey, thank you for having me. Well, this is such a beautiful book, but my first question really goes to your career and your profession, and I'm curious to know, how did you choose a profession in journalism, and what led you to stories of agriculture and injustice in particular? I actually started first as a community organizer, and I was in Brooklyn, New York, spoke some Spanish, so I ended up working mostly with Mexican immigrants in central Brooklyn, And I think after a few years of doing that, I became more and more interested not just in working with people on the campaigns that we were organizing, but learning more about where they came from, how they ended up, you know, often from rural Mexico to the streets of Brooklyn, and decided basically after several years to shift and go back to Mexico with one of the leaders of the organization who I had become close to. He was going to visit his mom and drive his taxi cab. He was a a taxi driver, drive it down to visit her in Mexico. And I went along with a vague idea of writing a book about him and his life. And so I actually began as an organizer and shifted to writing about journalism through the people I met through organizing. And I think there's some commonalities. You know, with organizing, you're often listening to and working with people who other folks or haven't had very many opportunities to be listened to, Mm -hmm. um, but who have a lot of potential and natural strengths that have just been missed. And in journalism as well, there's, you know, I, I spend most of my time talking to and recording the stories of people who don't usually talk to media, whose voices aren't usually heard. So I think there's sort of this behind-the-scenes work in both of them. There's a a quote by Amy Goodman from Democracy Now! I remember she used to use back in the day that journalism is going to where the silence is. And I think of that both with regards to organizing and journalism. So I think that... And then the move into agriculture became an outgrowth of my interest about and writing about immigrants in the U.S. because... You, know, you really can't separate. I, I did an earlier book where I looked at the working conditions of immigrants, and it turns out that three of the four jobs 
that I was doing alongside them were food-related. And so previously, you know, I, I didn't think very much about food or where it came from until I started really looking at the, the immigrant labor behind that, and that was my window in. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this book is so especially timely because there seems to be so much animosity in the media directed towards the people who are harvesting our food. And the media, for several years, I started attending media literacy conferences, and I realized how much media influences how we think about food and farming and how these media narratives and advertising construct how we should be looking at food. And as you say, how we don't think. We're sort of led away from the backstory of where our food comes from. And I love your introduction to this book. And you talk about John Steinbeck's journey in writing his novel, Grapes of Wrath. And you say that John Steinbeck was not prepared for what he found. And I wondered, were you prepared for what you found in working in the fields? No. You know, I think one of the great things about getting out and and actually meeting people and doing reporting is you get to have some of your assumptions challenged and you're constantly learning new things from the people you're you're interviewing or you're having conversations with. There were stories that were worse than I expected, especially in, in Chasing the Harvest. It's a, a collection of 17 oral histories, so 17 people telling their stories of how they came to be spending much of their lives in the fields of California. And there was some stories, one woman in particular, Marie Cruz Ladino, told me about being sexually harassed and then actually raped by a supervisor, but being afraid to complain to the company, being afraid that she would get fired, maybe deported. She finally gathers the courage to make a complaint, is then fired, is then deported. And so there were stories that, although I knew something about the people, often when I was sitting down to collect their histories, their oral histories, I didn't know everything. And and I was often, at the end of the interview, realizing how little I knew going in about the hardships that people had faced. At the same time, when you sit down and allow the conversation to be a little more wide-ranging. I think you get a fuller picture of farm workers as people who are as live as complicated and complex lives as anyone else. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I really enjoyed about doing this oral history book, after having done more traditional journalism with immigrant workers and farm workers over the years, is that I, I'm almost always writing about problems. And they certainly exist, you know, wage theft and sexual harassment. And But I would sit down with workers and they would tell me these stories about their lives and I would leave and I would only capture the slice of their life that I had an assignment for, which is about, let's say, wage theft. And so what you end up having is this picture of just people who are hyper-exploited, always miserable, in a constant struggle but you don't also get to see the the joys that are in their lives. And I think one of the things that shines through for me in each of these narrators as they tell their story is that despite whatever hardships, which are huge in their lives, there's room for joy and accomplishment and a sense of pride. And so I think it fleshes out 
farm workers not as this mass of kind of nameless, massive, miserable people, but as folks who are human. Exactly. Yeah, I love that you told the story about how music and singing were part of the lives that we really don't hear. And I appreciated the fact that you brought the joyfulness into the story. And I appreciated the gentleman that you interviewed who you were describing his hands, the the nails are cut, the calluses are tough. And he recognizes the value in those hands in terms of these hands are feeding people. Yeah, that was an earlier project. I spent two months harvesting lettuce in Arizona on a crew. Two months isn't a very long time, but it did give me a sense of, first of all, how incredibly, you know, everyone knows farm work is extremely hard, but it's less known how much skill it takes and how it's very much like a trade, like a construction worker or a plumber. You go, you're a craftsperson. And there's a an immense amount, or there can be an immense amount of pride in knowing that although the thousands, tens of thousands of people you will feed don't know you're there in that field, you in fact are a direct link to them. And so I, at the end of my two months of working in the less fields, I complained to a coworker, Tomas, once that I was, I was still falling behind and I was frustrated and I thought after two months I'd be getting this better. And he laughed and said, to work in the lettuce, it doesn't take you know two months or two years. It takes a number of years to really just reach a basic level of, of competency. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that you never look at a head of lettuce the same as you did prior to your experience in the field, right? It would be good if all of us really recognized what it takes to bring that food to market. I think that lately there has been a romanticizing of especially small family farms and small family farmers, but rarely are we learning about the farm workers and what it really takes to get most of the supermarket food to us? Yeah, there's, I mean, I remember seeing different ads. Maybe one was even a Super Bowl ad a year or two ago, and it was about the role that farmers play, which is so iconic, you know, in the in the United States, this idea of small agrarian farmers, honest work, up at the crack of dawn, doing what needs to get done. And this ad that I'm thinking of, it flashed all these images of farmers on tractors and, you know, mostly older white men. And you would never guess that there was, in California alone, 800,000 farm workers, almost all of them Latino, out at those same hours doing that same work. So I think there's an interesting, in some ways, they're invisible. The story they tell about the United States is not a story of necessarily of, of triumph, of, of self-sufficiency, the way that the sort of at least mythical story about of small farmers is, and so it's very easy to it's very easy to to miss them entirely. Yeah, that was a Super Bowl ad. Lots of sepia tones in those media images too, if I recall. Yeah, no, I remember. I you know, it's and I think what's interesting is the extent to which farm workers feel their invisibility. Yeah, one of the narrators in the in the book, uh, a man named Roberto started taking his cell phone out to the fields and recording videos, which he would throw up on Facebook. And sometimes he'd have hundreds of thousands of viewers uh, where he would just film work in the fields, describe a little bit about it, talk about the kinds of 
folks that were there and what the work entailed, just as a way to try to bring that world a little bit closer to the consumer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was really happy to see that. It gave me a little spark of hope in terms of helping people see what's really going on. So social media has a great value, I think, in the future. You know, we're we're looking at immigration policies and we're looking at the farm bill coming up on us. And I'm sure you have discussions about immigration with people and we hear the media messages about you know these people coming in from Mexico, we've got to keep them out. And yet we wouldn't be eating without individuals who are coming up to harvest our food. How do you dance around these topics when they come up in, in social circles? You know, it's it's difficult. I think it's it's especially difficult if you don't understand the ways in which your lives are completely enmeshed with the lives of undocumented workers. So if you think that it's, and I was just thinking, someone had got in contact with me a number of years ago saying that she was, she was upset because her, her son had become a really big opponent of undocumented immigrants. And, and that was one of the two bad habits he'd picked up in college. The other one was chewing tobacco. And I, I emailed her back letting her know that, you know, the people that he's railing against are actually more than likely the people that are harvesting the tobacco that he's, that is his new habit in, in North Carolina, that you think you're, you're sort of distancing yourself from, from these folks, but they are so deeply woven into the fabric of this economy and of our lives that it's really hard to imagine it being otherwise. And when push comes to shove, and, you know, growers, farmers often complain about a lack of workers. It's unclear how often they actually lack workers. But I think now we're starting to see a little bit of of a real evidence that there is worker shortage of farm workers. And there's no good answer for that because it's it's not only, as I said, really strenuous labor, it's incredibly skilled labor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's why you're seeing a lot of second thoughts among, I know, farmers in California and elsewhere who might have backed Trump, but now are seeing sort of the, not just the fact that it might impact their workers, but the general fear in immigrant communities is, it's it's unmissable. I mean, I've spent Mm. a, a fair amount of time the last year going back to the same places where I met the folks and interviewed in Chasing the Harvest. Um, and there's a, a world of difference between when I was meeting with them in 2016 during the campaign and now in 2018 with, you know, a year plus of Trump in office. Mm-hmm. Let me take one minute and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are joined by Mr. Gabriel Thompson, independent journalist, and we are speaking about one of his many books, and it's titled Chasing the Harvest, Migrant Workers in California Agriculture. I want to go back to that subject of fear because I think about – I remember being a child and I – and I know being the parent of a young child myself, the fear is always, you know, being separated and losing losing that parent or losing that child. And this is a fear that immigrant farm workers and their children face daily. 
How do the workers and children cope with that fear? There's no good solution, I don't think. There are different strategies. For the last year, I've been going back to the Coachella Valley, which is, you know, people know Coachella perhaps for the only for the, the music festival, but it's a big agricultural region in Southern California. And it's where several of the, the people in the book live. And so I've been going back, I think I've gone back six times over the last year to report on how families are are dealing with the various threats coming out of, of D.C. and of stepped-up immigration enforcement. And looking at how do teachers, how do parents respond. Um, one of the real tricky parts of it is that, you know, if you have a, a kid who's worried about a monster under the bed, you can, you know, show them, you can pull up the covers and show them and that, you know, there's no monster in the bed. But in this case, they're, they're, the monster is there and kids are very smart. They pick up on things. And so I've, I've met people whose strategies were to tell their kids they fixed their immigration papers as if it was just a matter of paperwork, as if it was just something they had forgotten to do so that their kids can finally relax and start, you know, paying attention in school and not living with, the, you know, this kind of fear really messes with all sorts of cognitive and executive functions that um, that everything about being a kid gets thrown out the window hmm. to reminding their kids before they leave each day that this could be, you know, they could be picked up and that they need to remember what to do if something happens so there's no good, you know, even talking to counselors, there's no good blueprint. What seems to be especially pernicious about this, at least from the reporting that I've done, is that it's clear farm workers have uh, uncommonly difficult lives. You know, they often make just enough money to keep migrating from place to place. Um, their kids have to switch schools often multiple times in the same year. But there is also this ecosystem of support that's been built up. Um, there are teachers, there's there's Migrant Head Start. There's a federal program called Migrant Education. So, And what, what we're seeing in part is that uh, farm workers are starting to pull back from the very agencies and programs that are designed to both sustain them and give their kids a boost forward. So Migrant Head Start is a program that cares for a small, I think it's maybe six months or six weeks to um, five-year-olds, um, really important times. And very for farm workers are really challenging, very challenging to find good daycare first because they don't have money, as very much money, and there there's hours all over the place. So Migrant Head Start is a great institution. When I visited the director of the of Migrant Head Start program in 2016, her problem was that the demand was so high they had 200 families on the waiting list. Wow. When I visited her to hand over a copy of Chasing the Harvest in 2017. The door across from her, the classroom door across from her office had been closed and it said that it was no longer open. They had closed the classroom because they couldn't find enough parents willing to hand their information over to Migrant Head Start because it was a federal program and they were afraid about potentially being a target of ICE or immigration enforcement. Yeah. Um, so you see this retraction that I think is is really starting to play out and that is especially sort of hard to see. Uh, absolutely. I, no one should live with that kind of fear. It's truly tragic. 
one of the people that you've interviewed, Roberto Valdez, he talks about, I believe he was the one with the social media, using social media. And he put on his, to his network that it was 120 degrees. And I think about all of the physical hardships that not only children are facing as well as their parents, but these increases in harm. So with climate change, we're going to have hotter temperatures. And then you also report about the pesticide exposure, which is something that I am very much interested in. You write that California growers sprayed, misted, fogged, and injected more than 193 pounds of pesticides onto and into their fields in 2013. And I'm familiar with, you know, some of the people who've been looking at what that does to children's brains. And we were so close to getting chlorpyrifos banned. This is an especially dangerous, it's a nerve agent, actually, that damages children's brains. We were so close to having it banned, and then the the new head of the EPA, Pruitt, delayed that. So you see all of these, in, in addition to the emotional risks, you've also got these true physical risks. And I wonder... What are your thoughts about the changes that we'll be experiencing going forward, not only under this administration and some of the loosening of the protections that farm workers have had, but real changes in terms of climate and access to shade and water in California fields? Yeah, there are big challenges. I was on a forum uh, last year looking at climate change as it affects farm workers or other laborers, you know, roofers, folks that are out in the field, and as it affects food production, you know, with with more scarcity of water, you know, we keep growing crops in the middle of deserts and rely on irrigation canals. Um, There's no, I think the best answer is that, if you want to look at a small positive piece here, is that there are these conferences that look at farm worker health. There is, um, and it's linked to climate change. There is, when you talk about pesticides, it's not only anymore about is this pesticide safe for my kid to eat, but it's increasingly also about what's the effect of the pesticide on the farm workers who are applying it daily. So I feel like the world from 10 years ago, when I, I feel like the food world was very much about local and and organic and very much from a is it safe to put into my body that we've panned back a little bit to be a little more comprehensive about what it would mean for a food system to to be good for people it also means to be good for for um the the, the people whose jobs are are directly you know make the whole food system possible Mm-hmm. I recently, but there, so there's, I say that on the positive side, there's a lot of energy into looking at these issues. I just got in touch with a, a I believe she's a high school senior now, and she's developed an app, um, not that apps are going to save the world, but this is a pretty interesting one that looks at, uh, alerts farm workers and their growers when the temperature hits a certain degrees in the field and tells them exactly what their, in, under California state law, their rights are to shade and to water. Um, and so kind of pings the whole crew at once and pings the grower. And they're rolling it out in a few with a few growers, and they're hoping to get it really up to scale pretty quickly. So I think 
that there is the, the the challenges are huge, um, and farm workers are are exposed to the elements in ways they'll be feeling the effects of climate change before you know office workers in in AC um, conditions. But I do think that the food movement has grown to really think more about the role that farm workers play and has worked to make them more central to the discussions that are happening. Well, I'd like to think so. And I, your kind of reporting that reveals what is really happening in the field certainly moves us in that direction. I want to pull a hero out of your book, Jim Cochran. I have visited his Swanton Berry Farm, Organic Berries. When I visited the farm and he spoke to a group of nutrition and food policy change makers, he spoke about how he treated his workers. It was so different. They had they had a living wage and they had health insurance. Health insurance is a big issue for me because I think that, of course, everyone needs access. What do you remember? What do you want to pull out about Jim Cochran that we can use to improve the food system? Well, you know, he did, he, he did a lot of really great pioneering work in terms of growing without pesticides and being neutral when the union tried to organize the workers and the workers tried, wanted to organize the union. He allowed them to sort of, he didn't play a oppositional role. What I think was, what I took away from my conversation with him, though, was that he, unlike almost every other farmer I've ever interviewed, told me very clearly, I I don't, this is not my family. These farm workers are not my family. These are workers who deserve dignity, but mm-hmm. um, there was there was none of that paternalistic talk that I have grown accustomed to, accustomed to hearing from farmers, which is like, you know, oh, let me introduce you, Jose over here. Jose, he's got a kid in here, and this is this is my big family. And yeah. Jose comes over and smiles. And you know, honestly, that kind of stuff about my family it echoes has too many echoes of slavery for me to ever be comfortable with. Yeah. But I think that with Jim Cochran, it's very clear that he's not running a charity. This is and and this is not a family thing. This is uh, what his his best attempt to make a sustainable company work that makes safe products and that allows the workers to have an, a very strong voice in running the, the company and that treats them with respect and has really clear rules. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for him also, the con- having a contract was, was key. Because a lot of times when you work, interview these farm workers, you realize that when people don't know what's expected, growers are often take advantage of that and, and push and push and push until... You've gotten so used to a, a workplace environment of extreme abuse that it starts to look like a regular workaday job. So I think for for me that was the line that really stuck out for from Jim that I'm not there. They're not part of my family. They're workers and they deserve respect. We'll have to leave it on that note, and it's a good one: respect and dignity in the food system. I need to close. I want to thank you for your book. However, it's so important. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Gabriel Thompson, investigative independent journalist. He has written multiple books, received multiple awards for his compassionate, compelling 
journalism. The book we've been talking about is titled Chasing the Harvest, Migrant Workers in California Agriculture. I highly recommend it. Thank you so much, for Mr. Thompson, for carving out time for me and for your truly important journalistic work. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate getting the chance to talk about this. 